If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Oh yes, oh yes, it is time once again for yet another exciting episode of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Woo! Yes! Hey, my name is Keith, uh, Keith Giles. I'm the author of several books, uh, including the upcoming uh, book on hell and universalism, and that is called Jesus Undefeated. Uh, I forgot the subtitle, but, you know, it'll be cool. Coming out November 9th, <laughs> coming out November 9th, uh, it'll, that'll be a lot of fun. I'm excited about that. And I'm um, also joined here by my good friends, Jamal and Matt. Hey, guys, introduce yourselves. Hi, friends. Just kidding. Hi, friends. My name my name is Jamal. <laughs> Low energy there. <laughs> Javanji, and um, I am the light of the world. And I, I was told. I was I was told. Um, I, was, I was told that by somebody um, very respectable. But I also believe that about all of us and all of you listeners out there. You're the light of the world as well. And this was told about you as well. And I am the author of the most recently released book of mine is Living for a Living. And uh, that is about <clears throat> you living for the highest essence, the highest motivation that you're here on the earth to live for, and actually be able to even make a living and actually earn income from just being yourself. Sounds, so, sounds crazy. Book. Sounds crazy to me. I don't know. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, and I'm Matt, and I I'll, I got a new book coming out. Are you guys excited mm-hmm. for it? Mm-hmm. You can say you can say no. Oh, I'm no. so excited! Um, I can't wait. But I can't. Yeah, well, I can't it, say the title. I can't say the title, but I love you, it. You can't. I will say the title. It's called "Devoted as Fuck," and it's it's actually cool. And we didn't plan this, but it's that book is coming out on October 10th, which is my daughter's birthday. And then Keith, your book. Have we announced the date for that? Uh, one it's yet? November 9th. Yes, which is my birthday. That's and my wife's birthday, and we didn't even plan that. So the universe, the universe is working for us on this on this show. Yeah, I think that's awesome. So. Uh, yeah, I'm excited for another episode. Hey, I, I forgot to say something, to everybody. Um, we are doing this podcast, by the way, is uh, in a brand new series that we're doing on culture wars. So, um, yeah. So, Mark, you know, if you're following along at home, you can check out the box. This is our yeah. new series, Culture Wars. Absolutely. Oh, and Jamal, you're yes, there? I'm here. I was thinking when I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking of culture wars. I was thinking of just like you know how many like all the different cultures that we we have out here in, in the USA. And I was thinking of just the different culture of Ohio state football culture and, mm. you know, other cultures. And I was just really excited about the big win on Saturday. So yeah. anyway, I just Grown. want to mention that here. Yeah. And um, uh, we have a hotline as well. And um, the, the number, and I have, I've mentioned that before and I'll mention it again, we have hotline um, still people are commenting, you know, in our Facebook groups and forums that they didn't know we had a hotline or do we have a hotline? And, you know, I just feel like my work is never done. So please, if you're listening to this, yes, we have a hotline and here's the number 240-343-7379 is the number 240-343-7379. Operators are always standing by and you can leave a voicemail if they're not. Um, and we have a voicemail. So can we cue that up? Hey guys, this is uh, Tim Ellis here in Indiana. I uh, just want to say thank you so much for your ministry. I think it's awesome. I really have enjoyed the podcast and I'm enjoying the Facebook groups and uh, 
<clears throat> I'm getting my dollars worth on the Patreon site for the uh, closed group. I appreciate that. But um, one thing I was just kind of curious about, or I don't know, I, I don't want to sound like a critic, but I, you guys always, when you introduce yourself, you say, you know, you, you say, my name's Keith or Jumanji or Matt, and here are the books that I've wrote. And I think that's awesome. And I mean, I, I, I love that you've written books. In fact, I've, I bought a couple from Keith and one of Matt's, and I'm going to probably get one of uh, Jumanji's here pretty soon. But I would like to hear, like, say, you know, my name's Keith, and and I'm I'm married, and I've got kids, or I'm I'm this. I, I, I my name's Matt, and I like football. Whatever, man. I just would I just like to hear a little bit more than what you guys do, what you books you've written. Just just a thought, just a suggestion. But uh, whatever you guys are doing is working. So uh, I appreciate it a lot, really, guys. It's awesome. So hope you're having a great a great September. Take wow. care. Bye. Well, you know what? So guys, we should try this again. All right, let's try it again. Okay. Yeah, hey, everybody. Let's, let's right. Wait, 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 wait. Before we do that, did he call him Jumanji? <laughs> Jumanji. Yeah. Is, is it a Jumanji? Like the movie? Right? <laughs> I don't know if anyone else caught that. I, I think that I think that is what he did, yeah. So I, this should, I think we should do this again, though. I think we should try this introduction thing again. And then try, okay, try his suggestion, it. right? Okay. So I got to think about what I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hey, everybody. Hi, I'm Keith Giles. Uh, I, um, I'm an old man. I drink a lot of coffee. I eat constantly. And um, I like science fiction. Jamal, you're next. We're going to go in order. So, yeah. So, say hi, Jam- say hi Jamal. And, hey, Jumanji sure. and Matt, say hi. Hey, Jama- Jumanji. <laughs> Is, I, th- I think he checked out. I think he's, he's watching the highlights of the <laughs> Ohio State game. Jamal, so. you're, on, you're, on, you're on mute, man. Oh, oh, oh so sorry. Yes, yes. Okay, Fox, so... God. My name is Jamal, and my last name is Javanji. Can I just say that if I had a nickel for every time – I used to substitute teach back in the day, and the kids would always call me, is that like uh, Jumanji? And I'm like, you know, it's Javanji, but it is like Jumanji. I've never seen that movie, by the way. Um, but if I had a nickel for every time that, that I was called that, I would be – You'd be living for a living. I'd, I'd have $100. So <laughs> – um, but anyway, let me just say this. I love, I, by the way, I love the caller. I love what the caller was saying. I th- actually think there's something to that. It's, it's interesting because I just, um, I have, you know, I'm on social media and so I do like little videos and I just, you know, share insights on Instagram or Facebook. And one of the things I actually shared this just this morning, uh, was a video about who we're not. Like a lot of people will say, well, you know, we're parents or we're a spouse, we're a lover, we're a writer. I get that. I understand that. But I was, I, I was overcome with this understanding something I do in a lot of my coaching work is one of the questions I like to ask people is like, who are you? And people think it's a trick question. It's like, no, actually it's not a, and there's no right answer to this. But the, the idea is we are so much more than anything we do. But a lot of us have just been programmed in this idea of like what, who we are is, 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 is what we do, or it's, we're trying to become something that we're, it's, it's not even conscious. It's like an unconscious thing. Like I'm kind of lacking. So I need to, I need to climb the ladder and become this thing. There's a lot of striving and energy that goes towards that. So I love the caller and, um, and what he was saying there, because we are more than the books we write and we are more than the professions, the things we do, even those are all important. I feel like the books we write, the things we do, these flow from, who we are, but the, but the question is, who are we? And that's a great question. Um, I, I would say, I would answer the question by this, like I am, well, I am 
and um, a being. I'm existence itself, consciousness. Um, and I'm also who I'm becoming in, in, in this life. I am becoming who I all, always have been and who I always will be. So I'm in practice becoming. So I would just answer it with just presence, with I am love. I'm presence. I am life. I'm the way. <laughs> All of these things, like that's who it's who we are. Even beyond my name, Jamal. It's like because my name was given to me at some point. But we're, we we transcend our even our names because our names have a have a finite beginning. Somebody called us that. Um, but there's another name for us that goes way beyond just this temporal essence. So I know that's all metaphysical, but that's just it's true. It's just who like it's who we are. So is that your intro, Jamal? Is that what's <laughs> your intro? <laughs> I do oh, like no, the Buckeyes. Yeah. I do like the Buckeyes. I do love my wife, um, Taylor, the beautiful Taylor. I'm a dad. Uh, I have a daughter who I love. Um, you know, but uh, I am, I guess I'm just essence and li- life and love and the way. I mean, I agree with Jesus. You know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. As all of you are, of all, of us, of all as we are, Jesus. I mean, we we're like him. You know, as as the Bible says, not to get all scriptural here, but the Bible says we're like him. So, he's the way, the truth, and life. Well, how can we not be? Well, and that makes me mad. I am. Uh, I like. To, <laughs> I like to drink whiskey. Uh, I like to go on hikes, and I like to work out a lot, and I smoke weed, and I like uh, the Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, even though they suck. So that's what I, that's what I am into. And I like pina coladas and getting lost. In that. <laughs> that's right. So there, I guess that, that would be a long intro though. You so, know, though, but, uh, but anyway, seriously though. Yeah. Like Jamal was saying, it's, that's an interesting, um, you know, I guess we could be a little more personal. Um, probably. Uh, and maybe, I don't know I me, mean, but I guess in some ways I just feel like maybe I'm wrong about this, but I just feel like, uh, that most people listen to the podcast kind of know all this stuff about us. They kind of picked up on this, like our personal life, you know, our wives and our kids and yeah. where we, we live. And, yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. but that's cool. I'm glad you want to know that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That actually means a lot. So, uh, yeah. Thank you for that call. And yeah. And Tim, you know, I, I recognize you from Facebook and, uh, and the group and all that stuff. So yeah. And thank you by the way, for your Patreon support. That's very, yeah. very cool. Totes. So that brings us, uh, I think it's time to move on to our Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, my name is Josh, and I am a heretic. Hi, Hi Josh. Josh. <laughs> you guys are so cheesy. Yes, we, we mm-hmm. definitely are. We, are. we got the cheese factor going. Yes, I've been accused of having slightly more cheese, though. Um, <laughs> it's not a competition. <laughs> but, but it's... Um, it's really good to have you on the podcast. I've actually wanted to talk with you for quite a long time, so it's it's a great opportunity to connect. Wow. So, yeah, before before uh, we get into our conversation, I just want to just want to say that it's so good to have a fellow Buckeye on the <laughs> podcast because you you live in Southern Ohio, right? The Southern Ohio area. I'm I'm from Central Ohio, which is Columbus. It's a very different world, but mm-hmm. I used to come down there a lot to your neck of the woods. I used to have friends in South Webster and Wheelersburg and Portsmouth. And we used to get in so much trouble down there. I mean, it's mm, really, I'm sure you did. <laughs> it, was, it was a, <laughs> it was a very uh, tumultuous period of my life in my teenage years. But uh, anyway, so good that, I mean, it's just so cool. It's like a redeeming part. Cause I, I um, just somebody of your quality of person. It's just cool to know that there is 
there are good people in that part of the world. <laughs> there are, <laughs> yes. And there are Buckeyes at plenty down here, for sure. Very good. Very good. And I understand you're a Wildcat fan, which is totally fine. We don't really care <laughs> very much. Yeah, well, see, I live right on the river, um, right? So I grew up on the Kentucky yeah. side and migrated over here to Ohio after I got married. So, you know, I'm a transplant. I gotcha. So you're from Ashland, right? Is it Ashland? Um, South Shore. So it's it's directly across the river from Portsmouth. If you're familiar there, yeah, a real small town, but yeah, yeah, it's about half an hour down the road from Ashland, Kentucky. Um, jump across the bridge, mm. five minutes between Portsmouth and South Shore. Wow, yeah, fantastic, awesome. Well, tell us a little bit. One of the things we like to do is with our guests is just find out why people would consider them a heretic. So why why would people consider you a heretic? Yeah, it's a great question, and I've thought about this. You know, I've listened to you guys' podcast you know, before a number of episodes, and it's a, just a fantastic conversation starter. Um, you know, me personally, it's probably a mishmash of a few different things. And honestly, probably has more to do with just kind of my persona and who I am and how I, how I relate to people, how I deal with them more than anything else. Um, I hold my beliefs pretty loosely. Um, that's just kind of a general rule that I hold with everything. I, I love to ask questions, the bigger, the better. Um, I love to challenge assumptions. Um, and of course, coming from my background, uh, theologically, a lot of my reflections that I'll share, whether that's publicly on social media, from behind the pulpit, or just in one-on-one conversation, you know, comes from that angle of a theological reflection. And I love to challenge assumptions that people hold, um, especially when it seems like there are unhealthy psychological underpinnings to them, you know, kind of upholding, you know, why people believe what they believe. Um, where I come from, you know, there's, uh, we're on the tip of the Bible belt. So it's a lot of traditional, socially conservative um, Christianity down here. That's pretty much all it is, actually. And so there's a lot of people that hold traditional Christian conservative views, uh, but a lot of them don't really know why. And they've never stopped to question their assumptions. So I do that a lot with people. Some people appreciate that. Some people don't. Um, I have a way of, uh, I like to work with pretty much anybody um, for the common good. Um, I wholeheartedly reject uh, any kind of fundamentalist uh, doctrines of separation or secondary separation, you know, so I think that imbibes a lot still of evangelical culture. Um, this expectation that if I'm going to work with you, not only do you not need to be a heretic or false teacher, but you need to not relate to anybody who is a heretic or a false teacher. And so I get a lot of people that hold me at arm's length because I'll work with pretty much anyone. Uh, there's a quote I kind of live by, I'm trying to think of who said it, Markham, Edwin Markham, maybe. Anyway, it's one of my favorites. He said, he drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But Love and I had the wit to win because we drew a circle that took him in. And I try to live by that. And, uh, you know, not everybody lives by that rule. And some people, it kind of rubs the wrong way. You know, I believe that the needs of individual people should prevail always over the needs of the institution, you know, whether that's a church group or any other kind of organization. And so, you know, I often push back and challenge people in that way. And I think or I hope, I like to think at least, that I kind of align with Jesus and his identification there with the prophetic tradition, which was always in tension with the uh, the priestly or the scribal tradition, you know, there where you see that tension play out a lot in the Gospels. You know, and I refuse litmus tests. That's a big thing for me. People I've run into that, you know, they want to know, what, what do you believe about, you know, such and such? And I've had pastors and I've had people approach me, send me a message on Facebook, you know, get these questions. I need to know what you believe on 
this, this, and this, and they'll give me a bullet point and I'll just say, sorry, brother. I don't, you know, I don't play that game. I don't operate that way. I don't, I don't answer to questions about my fitness for fellowship. If I'm not in an actual relationship with you, you know, if there's, if you want to have coffee, if you want to get to know one another, cool, we can do that. And then we can kind of hash some of this out in relationship. But if you're just interested in me for whether or not you can figure out if I'm on the team or not, ah, you know, I don't play that game. So I, I think it's a kind of a combination of all that and just how I relate to people in general. Totally, totally. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, cause I've often contended with people mm-hmm. that look it's, it, you know, I, I have no litmus test, you know, people can believe what they want, you know, whatever they want to believe is fine. My, my, my question, my, something I like to challenge people with is, but there are certain beliefs where it doesn't matter. I mean, you're going to be accepted. I, my understanding is that God accepts you period. Right. You know, there is an, there's an acceptance. There's a love for you. It's unconditional. It's based on your being, not your beliefs. Um, but I will often challenge people and say, but you can hold to beliefs that will actually damage you. Right. It doesn't damage God, <laughs> it, but it will damage your psyche right. and your persona in the world and cause lots of suffering. So I just want to ask you, what are some of the traditionally held Christian beliefs that from a psychological perspective, you feel like actually do psychological damage mm-hmm. to people? Well, I deal with a lot of people who, um, have an underlying assumption, a belief in the doctrine of original sin. And so the depravity of humanity. Um, And so they believe that deep down at our core, we're very wicked, sinful, broken people. And that's our core identity. That's who we are. And we're born in sin. We're born enemies of God. We're born separate from, from God because of, you know, something Adam did, what, however many years ago you believed that he did what he did. And um, that informs uh, people. 5,280 years, by the way. Yeah, yeah okay, 5,280, in case anybody out there is wondering. Um, but, you know, at the same time, <laughs> you know, these, these same people, when, when they, in, 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 in other aspects of their life, um, they're, they're wrestling with, you know, low self-esteem. They're, they're wrestling with uh, issues of, of personal confidence. Um, they're wondering how to um, build a healthy foundation in their children, but at the same time, they're taking them and dropping them off at Sunday school classes and va- vacation Bible school where they're teaching kids, um, you know, look, you were born deserving of hell. <laughs> and, and, and people that, that a- amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And people that grow up uh, who have deeply, who have imbibed, that as a core belief and a presumption about themselves that I was born on God's bad side because of something someone else did. And I am fundamentally flawed and broken. And then add to that all of the other experiences of trauma, neglect and abuse that that many people experience throughout their life growing up um, formatively in their younger years and then on into their adult age. And, you know, it leads to a very uh, low sense of self and a a very um, fundamentally unhealthy devaluing of oneself, you know, and then they try to be Christians and they hear Jesus Mm -hmm. saying things like deny yourself. And it fits perfectly with the unhealthy psychological predisposition that they've gained or that they've they've had built into them since they were children. And so you get people who are ready and willing to sacrifice 
their whole lives, their whole sense of self value, their whole personal worth and wholeness and put it all on the back burner mm. in, in the name of what? Serving Christ, following Jesus, being a Christian, loving other self, people. Self-denial. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a big one that I deal with and I see and observe and a lot of people down here at least. Wow. That, that's profound. I wish more people understood that. I, um, you know, especially folks who are deconstructing. I know a lot of folks, and again, this is, everybody has to, to wrestle this out on their own, but they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I don't really go to traditional church anymore in the way we used to, but they'll take their kids and drop them off. And I'm like, you know, that's a really, that's interesting. I, I don't know how I, I, I mean, I do know what I would do. I'm just, it, the idea is just like, I, I wonder if people realize like, this isn't just about, sometimes it's, it's more than just theological differences. Like we just have a theological difference. It's actually like when you really, you know, think about this idea that we are depraved, when you lose self, you literally become um, dead from the neck down. I mean, it's, you lose your life, so to speak. It's, mm-hmm. Um, and then that makes you uh, a candidate for all kinds of abuse and um, well, mind control. And, and it's not only people holding certain beliefs uh, with unhealthy psychological underpinnings themselves and the damage that it wreaks, you know, rots in, the, in them personally, but people in positions of power who willed those doctrines um, to do damage to other people. You know, that's that's like a whole another level to that. And I've had a lot of experience with people. I've experienced it myself um, who have sat under the authority of, or the teaching of pastors and ministry leaders who um, willed some of these doctrines um, in these unhealthy ways to control people, uh, to, to infantilize people, uh, to bring them under their sway and under their power, keep them following them in the name of following Jesus. Right. Um, I had a really, um, formative experience of this at a Bible college I was part of back in 2006, where I graduated from, where there was a lot of spiritual abuse and manipulation that took place, a really strong authoritarian culture of leadership there. And I've got fellow students, friends who are still not recovered from their experience there. And um, it's, you know, it's like that in a lot of places, right? Throughout the Christian world, throughout the evangelical world. Of course, that's my particular, um, you know, tradition I, I held mostly from evangelical churches, uh, but it's rampant. It's everywhere. Um, and there are not enough people talking about this. There are not a lot of enough people challenging assumptions and asking the deep questions that get to the heart of the matter. Okay. Maybe it looks good on a felt board, <laughs> you know, or a Sunday school presentation, but what is, what is this teaching mm-hmm. or, or the way that you present it to our children, for instance, since we've already mentioned that, what is this doing to them? How is that? What is this setting them up for in life? Um, are they going to have to recover from this 30 years down the road? You know, those, those are the kind of questions that I, I, I like to ask that, that sometimes people don't don't like to. It's really, good, really good questions. Yeah. And and Josh, you mentioned you, you come from a, a more evangelical background and it, it doesn't sound like you're quite there any longer. Um, I, uh, we're always curious to find out. What were some of the highlights uh, of your journey and how you've gotten to the place where, I mean, it's certainly not fundamentalist to say you hold your beliefs loosely. How have you gotten to a place where you, where you do hold your beliefs loosely and ask these questions? Yeah, good question. Um, for me personally, when I, when I look at the Gospels, um, I see Jesus often taking his disciples to places like Samaria, uh, where he met the woman at the well, um, 
I see him in, in encounters with people like the centurion who came to him, I think maybe in Luke's gospel, maybe one of the others as well. Um, and using people who were outside of the Jewish fold um, as an example to highlight uh, to his disciples, look what God is doing outside of the circle which you circumscribed in which you believe God is, if not, if not only active, at least primarily active. Look at this centurion. I have not found this kind of faith in all of Israel. And I, I see he was constantly, it seemed like, leading his disciples uh, to notice how God was being, uh, was moving or was, was, was present or was being, was acting outside of their own tradition. And my life has been a lot of that of just, I, I feel like, if I can use the old evangelical term, God leading me in ways and in places and in and out of churches and, and traditions and, and encounters with, with people to see, look at what I'm doing in the world, in people and in places that you once believed I, I, I couldn't or I wouldn't. You know, and as Christians and as evangelicals, you know, we're taught to believe that we've kind of got a lock on the truth. We've got a lock on the Holy Spirit. Yeah, maybe there's some common grace that God gives to people in the world in general, you know, to get stuff done. But we've we've got this, you know, we've got the the, the real truth here. You know, we've got the Holy Spirit. Here, God acts specially among us in ways that He doesn't among others. And I've been constantly surprised, you know, in one one encounter after another, one book after another, you know, one new learning experience after another, to see no, it's it's not like that at all, you know. And I used to think that to follow Jesus on the narrow way, you know, that he encouraged people to, to walk meant that my horizons would be constantly diminishing. You know, the, the circle of people that I ran with would get smaller and smaller. There would be less that I would have any kind of uh, ability to give myself to in the world. And I've come to see that it's quite the opposite of that, you know, and diminishing horizons are a sign of fundamentalism, not of actual, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the life to which, which Christ calls us or God calls us in Christ. And, um, you know, that's taken specific form for me, you know, back when I was at Bible college, um, honestly, uh, I'm a little disappointed Keith's not with us today because he <laughs> would relate to some of this. Uh, for me, it started, I started reading the writings of like Gene Edwards and some of the old organic house church, uh, movement people. Um, that is what originally kind of started to break me out of my evangelical box. Uh, I began to learn some of the history of dissenters, you know, throughout church history, you know. Christians and churches who weren't um, neatly Roman Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant. They kind of did their own thing outside of all those boxes. And then, of course, the experience I had of spiritual abuse, uh, the authoritarianism at Bible college, seeing that effect on other people, seeing how people could just do and say the most awful things in God's name, in Christ's name, to uh, control and to dominate other people, um, all kind of combined to have this effect on me. And then, of course, meeting new people. I do lots of reading. Uh, Last year was my banner year. I think I read 100 plus books last year is my best so far. And so I'm constantly trying to expose myself to what's going on outside of my circle. You know, and I see evidence of God everywhere. And that's just led me over the years to continue to ask questions, to continue to challenge, first of all, my own assumptions, my own uh, underlying why questions. Well, why do I believe this? How is it serving me? How is it serving the people I'm in a relationship with? in the way that I practice my faith. Um, so it's been a lot of that, seeing God's activity in the other, whoever that other might be at a given point of time, and then just kind of following where the evidence leads me. Mm. Good, good stuff. Um, so what we, uh, th this episode, we're, you know, we're doing it on, on mental health. And, and from what I understand, you um, do a lot of work in that area. Can you uh, kind of expand on that and tell people 
what kind of stuff you're doing and and where people can get a hold of you and if they're interested in in your type of work. Sure. Yeah. So over the past couple of years, I've gotten really involved with the opiate crisis um, in my area. Right. Okay. A year and a half ago, I was delivering mail. And I felt this strong urge that I wanted to step out of that, quit my job, move towards a more meaningful vocation. And I did that. And I was able to um, spend some time in our 2018 midterm election here in the state of Ohio, uh, working on an issue related to criminal justice reform and how that intersects with the opioid crisis, uh, recovery work, access to drug treatment uh, in my state. And that led me uh, down further avenues of research and getting to know people um, who are wrestling with issues of drug addiction. And when you, you find when you really get close to folks who wrestle with drug addiction that there's often co-occurring disorders underlying a lot of that uh, drug use in particular. Um, I'm a big fan of the work of Gabor Mate, who um, feels that uh, pretty much all addiction is the outcome of unresolved trauma, unprocessed uh, pain, basically, from our childhood, mm. stuff that we've not been yes. able to get over, um, and that we've just found, we've found a way to cope with it. And then in the case of those who, you know, abuse substances, um, they've just found an unhealthy way to cope with it. But that's true of all of us in, in various ways. And so we, we have to ask not why the addiction, mm -hmm. because that's not their problem in most cases, but why the pain? And we got to, again, look beneath the surface and, and ask and try to notice and see what's going on in a person's life um, that is so painful to them and so traumatizing to them that they can't stand to be present in their life. And this sure. is reaching epic proportions across mm -hmm. our country. You know, they're saying now one out of three, maybe some researchers say one out of two people in America have been touched in some way by the opioid crisis. And interwoven in all of this is a lot of mental health issues and a lot of questions um, uh, concerning care, access to treatment, stigma, why people who live with these co-occurring disorders live with the shame, don't seek help, can't get access to help. Of course, this intersects with uh, the Christian world and the church because uh, mental health, um, professional services, therapy, has long been stigmatized, uh, you know, among evangelical churches. And that's also a hangover from, you know, the, the fundamentalist movement as well. And um, so there's a lot of folks suffering. They're suffering under abuse. They're suffering with addiction issues. Uh, they're suffering with mental health challenges and they're not getting the help they need. So, you know, I've, I've had one door after another open since I, I kind of broke into that work. And right now I'm pastoring uh, United Church of Christ in my town. And we're really trying to align the church's mi mission with the recovery community in our county. And also um, find ways that we can integrate um, healthy uh, practices when it comes to uh, mental, mental illness, mental health. Um, treating folks who need help, getting access to folks who need help um, with the church, within a faith-based uh, setting in the community. And uh, this is kind of a challenge right now that we're facing, but I'm trying to work in partnership with other organizations in our area to see how we can kind of integrate the two things and those two worlds, the faith-based uh, community on one side and, uh, you know, mental health practitioners and service providers on the other. Absolutely. Wow. That That's um, phenomenal, Josh. I, you know, I, I used to I used to be a correction officer in Ohio, in the state of Ohio. So I worked in a prison um, in Pickway County, actually. Right. And um, and even, this was a little bit before the opioid crisis that we have today. But it still, um, I, I discovered the same thing: like addiction 
the addiction epidemic is really the, the you know, result of unprocessed trauma and pain. Mm-hmm. And I, I applaud the work that you're doing. It's such a huge thing. You know, I obviously know that it's a big, big problem in Ohio and mm-hmm. uh, Kentucky in that area. Um, but it's nationally, it's a, it's a huge issue. I, I really, my personal, I just really want to see, I think it's criminal uh, how um, our pharmaceutical companies are capitalizing on the unhealed trauma of so sure. many Americans and uh, how doctors are, you know, not intentionally, but the system, the institutional system of medicine is so complicit mm-hmm. and um, really driving or killing people. Um, and uh, basically legalized drug pushers. It's unbelievable. And I'm just glad to see some of the cases where um, these pharmaceutical companies are being held to account uh, for their actions, which I think there needs to be a lot more of that. But yeah, to the root of it, like how do you get to the root of it? I mean, you can get rid of all the pharmaceutical companies, which <laughs> I don't think would be all bad. But I think if you, if you, if you, if you got rid of that, the, the, these drug makers, it would not address the root problem, which sure. is trauma and pain, right. which really... We're talking about people who have sp- the spiritual well-being of people at, at heart um, need to be really involved in that work. And I applaud you for the work you're doing there because it's really needed. It, I believe it's the work of the gospel, yeah. you know, to heal people. And this is the work. I, you know, my understanding is when Jesus said you'll do greater things mm-hmm. is really it's not just healing the surface level, but getting to the root pain that's mm-hmm. driving all of this dysfunction. And I think that's the work you're doing. Really, I mean, and you see the you see the correlation, and you see the overlap. You know, for instance, between like you know the Christian world, the religious world, and what some people might consider the secular world or secular society. You know, we've got our healthcare industry where we're largely just treating symptoms, you know, of underlying problems that are going unaddressed, needs that are going unmet. Sure. And we do the same thing in our churches, right? It's all about sin management. Yeah, it's all about dressing up the outer man, you know, right? Whitewashing the tomb, making it all look nice, and and we're we're leaving that that inner man of the heart. You know, we're not leading people to wholeness, basically, on on either front. And uh, why not? I don't know, because then you lose, you know, paying customers, I suppose, whether it's in the church or, you know, in the world. But um, it's a huge challenge. And, and I, I agree with you, absolutely. I think that's part of the healing ministry of Christ, that the church, if it has ears to hear right now, there, there's there's a real vacuum. There's a real need for that to be uh, filled. And faith communities, I believe, still yet even despite everything I've seen and experienced of the abuse and all that, I still believe uh, faith communities, churches in particular, could really step up and step in and, and, and fill that need and in effect be that expression of Jesus Christ and his healing ministry to the world. At least that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> we'll see, I suppose. Totally, totally. And I, it is interesting to me though, and I, I find this, fa- this, this, I don't think it's a coincidence that the parts of our country in which the church, and I use, I'm using quotes to say the church, that has been so strong is also the same places where the addiction crisis has been so large. Sure. Um, and I wonder if the culture that's shaped by evangelical Christianity, which honestly is abusive in my understanding, like I don't think that has anything to do with Jesus, but I'm, I'm saying like just mm-hmm. the, the, the culture in which we so psychologically damage people's perceptions of themselves and of the world they're living in, mm-hmm. is it any, it, it, I don't know that it's a coincidence that this, these are the same places that have such huge, um, you know, addiction crisis and opioid crisis and, mm-hmm. you know, even the porn crisis, the, all of this stuff right. is just rampant in the Bible belt. Mm-hmm. And I just think there's a correlation between the two mental health and the beliefs that we hold to. It could very well be, man. I mean, you know, when you seek to kind of suppress these energies, you know, some of them are dark energies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
what Jung might call our shadow, uh, when you seek to suppress that rather than to integrate that. And as Christians, we've been taught you don't do that. You deny yourself. Sure. So it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a distorted think view. It's not what I think Jesus meant. I don't think he was encouraging an unhealthy practice when he said deny yourself. But, uh, but we've, we've taken it. We've made it that. No, we've made no. this suppression of the soul in particular, all the dark energies within us, rather than practicing kind of a radical acceptance. This is who I am. This is what's going on inside of me. Yeah, sure. I feel this way sometimes. I think these thoughts sometimes. You know, this is what I've done in my past when I've acted out of that. Um, accepting that, befriending that, recalling those exiled parts of ourselves and seeking how we can integrate them healthily into, you know, both the story of our lives and what's going on just within us right now. And a lot of that, as you said, has to do mm -hmm. with calling a lot of unprocessed pain and trauma. And most of our churches are not safe spaces to do that in, you know, we, churches where you, you go uh, mm -hmm. to look your best. It's where you go to present yourself, you know, some kind mm -hmm. of fancy polished offering to God. Uh, and it's not really a safe space or it hasn't been historically by and large, there've been exceptions, uh, a safe space for people who deal with uh, addiction issues and mental health challenges. And we've really got to change that if we want to, uh, at the very minimum, stay relevant in our society, which is increasingly becoming a post-Christian society, um, let alone if we want to make a positive impact in the name of Christ here in the West, I think. We've got to find ways to do that. Yeah. Well, uh, Josh, thank you so much for the work you're doing. Where can our listeners um, follow uh, follow you and in, in your work, and, and um, sure. where can they get a hold of you if if you want them to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I blog on Pathios, which I, um, I'm on the, the empty pew on the progressive Christian channel. So you can find me there. Uh, if you really want to support my work, I'm also on Patreon. I offer some free content there, but uh, supporters also get access to exclusive stuff as well. And of course, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, probably most active on Facebook um, in terms of um, having these kind of conversations in a public online space. You can find me any of those places. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, really, really appreciate it. I thought this was a great conversation. I thought, uh, I think these conversations are, are really, really needed, obviously, um, not only in the Christian world, but in the world at large. Mm -hmm. oh, I appreciate you guys. Appreciate the work you're doing. Appreciate the conversations. Yeah. Okay. Go Buckeyes. Yeah, go I'll Buckeyes. say it. Go Buckeyes. Yeah. Go Wolverine. <laughs> and the Wolverines. Yeah. And Wildcat. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Man, <clears throat> awesome. yes, thank you, Joshua, for coming on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. So cool. That was really, really yeah. a great interview. Yeah, Josh is a great guy. I did a did an event with him a couple of years ago in uh, Cincinnati area. And uh, just a, it was great to meet him in person because I've known him for a long time, kind of on the internet and meeting him in person and hanging out with him and everything. Yeah, he's, a, he's the real deal, man. He's a super cool guy. You know what I realized? Um, it's been a few years, but I've realized this and I sometimes get reminded of this from time to time again, is that people on the internet are actually people. They're real people. Mm. And so when you, mm. when you meet, you can meet them and they're like, Hey, I just saw you digitally. I've seen your profile or your name pop up here and there. When you meet them, you're like, Oh, you're just like me. Sometimes it's good to remember that, you know, just for me, I just like, Oh yeah, these are, these are all real living, breathing people. Yeah. 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 Which, which does make it cool to meet people online than meet them in face face to face, you know, it becomes, becomes much more real, much more experiential. You realize how much, uh, I, I've found, I've realized, wow, I, I guess my mind is always trying to like put people in categories and boxes. Cause when you meet them, you're going, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. You're not like what I thought, or you are like, you know what I mean? It's always right. kind of like, it's, it's crazy yeah. how the mind works, you know? Yeah, it's true. And there's always a dimension to that person that is 
that you that never comes across mm-hmm. on the digital side of it. You know, like when I do let me meet these people in person, like this just happened a few months ago. I was in Georgia, and like golly, it was like a reunion of Facebook. You know, there's so many people I met for the first time in person, and I think with almost every case. I mean, you know, part of it was like, yeah, okay, that's kind of the way they are on, on, you know, online. But there was, for all of them, the more you talk with them, there was this beautiful dimensions of like layers of like their story and, and their personality that just doesn't come across. And it was really, really cool. You know, it's like, it really does add so much to actually be able to meet someone in the real world and talk with them and stuff. So yeah. it's fun. It is fun. But uh, yeah, sure. like like you mentioned at the start, where, well, it doesn't, it might not, we, we might not have a great segue, but um <laughs> You mentioned that we are in our culture. I mean, it probably relates. Social media does impact the mental health, does it not? So, and that's what we're going to be talking about. So, yeah, it, it kind of fits, I think. Um, so, yeah, let's, uh, I don't know. We're not going to solve all the world's problems, but let's have a chat about mental health. Well, and, uh, speaking of, yeah, uh, totally. Speaking of like real people, <clears throat> you know, uh, something I've paid attention to, and I, I think this is a timely episode. Um, there's just been some high profile folks that, you know, uh, pastors. Um, I, I've heard it recently about a pastor in this area um, who, had, who had recently committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we see people through, and I, and I even t- to take it back to our, um, <clears throat> our caller from this, you know, earlier uh, when we were talking about like, who are we, you know, and sometimes we see people through or people or even people see themselves through the label um, like a pastor or a leader, all these things. And we forget that, you know, these are real people. And it's shocking sometimes when we hear about folks who may be in positions of spiritual authority, you know, like, you know, in, in, the, in the evangelical world, the pastors, the, the system just naturally promotes people to this pedestal. And they be, we kind of lose sight of the fact that these, that we're all people that are affected by things and, and people struggle. And um, so anyway, this, it was shocking. I mean, it was even on CNN, you know, this, people mm-hmm. kill themselves every day. It's a tragedy. You know, people suicide. I mean, we lose so many people to suicide um, every day, but you don't really hear about. It. But the fact, the reason this was on CNN that this because it was a pastor, because we see people do these labels, we forget. Um, so it's just good to come back and realize that you know, gosh, we we are all people at the end of the day, you know, and and you know, to see people from beyond their professions or what they do and just really begin to appreciate the essence of a person. So it's huge, especially in the topic of mental health. Yeah. Well, I, I think here's the thing um, <clears throat> that I think is part of it. I think it's part of this whole thing. Uh, I think we're fascinated or, you know, <clears throat> when, when someone like this, like, oh, he's a pastor, but he killed himself. And then you see a picture of him and oh, he's got this beautiful wife and these amazing, beautiful kids. <clears throat> and, um, you know, this guy was on he wrote books and he did, he, he was on a platform, a big stage. Um, you know, he was someone people looked up to and, and yet, yet he killed himself, you know? And so I think sometimes what that is for us, like we're, we're, we're strangely fascinated by those kinds of situations. Like if a, you know, if a, a, a movie star, an actor kills himself, someone like Robin Williams or uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman or someone like this, right? It's sort of like, well, we think, well, but wait a minute, they were successful and they were famous and they were, they did all these things. And so I think we have this wrong idea that, uh, and I think this plays into our, our own depression, our own mental health. We, we, we say, well, okay, you know, if I could just get that promotion, or if I could just marry someone like that, or if I could just get a, a house like that, or a car like that, or if I could get, if I could publish a book, or if I could whatever, like, that's going to change me. 
that's going to suddenly my life will not be, you know, shitty anymore. It'll be great. And then the, then the, uh, but the reality is you, thank you. The reality is you get that job or you meet that person and get married and you, you achieve these things that you think, well, if I could just do that thing, if I could just experience this, then my life will be better. And then you do experience it and you find out you're the same person and you haven't changed, right? I, I mean, that happened to me when I got licensed and ordained as a pastor. I, I just thought, well, when I get licensed and ordained as a pastor, wow, I'm a pastor now. My life's going to be different. And then I just realized, no, I'm the same person. And then I got married. I thought, well, that's going to radically change my life. I'm going to be a completely different person. And I got married and I mean, it was great, but it didn't change me. I realized uh, fundamentally I'm the same person. And, and, and I kept doing this in my life. You know, uh, I was in a band and I'm like, well, let me record our first album. And that album comes out, man, that's going to change everything. And it didn't. I was still the same person. And so, you know, I kind of go through several of these things in my life and just recognize that, yeah, these external things that we experience don't change who we are. Then it doesn't make us happy. It doesn't fulfill us. It doesn't, it doesn't transform the inner person, right? Just because there's an outward uh, experience. And so I think that's part of our downfall is that we, we have set up this expectation that if I can do this or be this or accomplish this, I will be happy or I won't be depressed or I won't have this anxiety or whatever, but that isn't true. And then once you, and then once you achieve that and yeah. it doesn't change you, then it's like, well, now what? You don't even, now what is the solution if that wasn't the solution? Well, and a lot of that stuff, and, and, and I'm sure it transcends our culture, but a lot of times, I mean, that just seems like one of those times where we're putting on a Band-Aid. We're not getting to the root cause of something. And for mental health, I mean, I've had mental health issues for as long as I can remember, depression mm-hmm. and anxiety. And I think, I think just, um, thinking that if we get this, if we do that, then we're going to, that's just a bandaid. That's right. just treating the symptoms. It's not treating like the underlying, um, some of it's disease. Some people do have yep. clinical depression. Some people, it is a biological issue. And then some people, I mean, it, it's probably not. And, but it takes a lot of work to, to get to those issues so that you can really heal and really um, and that doesn't mean you're going to be cured. I mean, it's it just, I think sometimes acknowledging, labeling it for or, or pointing at what it is. Like I have depression, yeah. I have anxiety and that's a thing and that's, and that's okay. And, um, it might not always go away, but here, here's how, once you recognize it, then you can find ways to manage it and, and, and still, you know, still be able to function in life. Yeah. That's a great point, Matt. I think it's important to, to recognize that there are multiple causes for people having depression or anxiety or mental illness. So it's not, it's important to say it's not one thing because that's, I think part of the problem too, is people say, Oh, it's a chemical imbalance. Well, maybe, maybe for you, it is a chemical imbalance, but maybe for someone else, it's this, this horrible childhood trauma they went through that they had need to go and get some therapy and, and, and deal with that and work that out and figure out how to process that. And, and some people are maybe a combination of those things. Like maybe they went through a trauma and they have a chemical imbalance. And so you have to first figure out what is the root cause of it. And I, I love that you said that. You've gotta, we can't Band-Aid this thing. We need to figure out first what is the cause. And then the solution will be different depending on what is the root cause of it. Yeah, which I, which I think it's I never would want to swing things too far one way or the other and say, oh, we just need to throw drugs at it. Or, oh, no, all drugs are bad. So it's, we never want the pendulum to swing too much, you know, like it's not pharmaceuticals versus uh, a more holistic or um, type of approach, right? It could be both and or either or depending on the situation. Yeah. And, you know, it's going specifically to the, uh, 
to the young man that who was a pastor who, who committed suicide that Jamal mentioned at, at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I have a, I have a friend I and mean, this is a person I know in the real world. Uh, and, um, they were posting the day after the news hit and kind of beating the guy up, like, you know, what a coward and how did he take the, you know, why did, why did he do this? You know? And, um, and basically blaming this guy that basically he just didn't try hard enough or that he, um, that he wasn't a strong enough Christian that he, uh, you know what I mean? I'm like, gosh, man, that stuff makes me so angry because it's not, it's people that, that commit suicide, people that, you know, th- th- here's the thing. They are fighting every way they know how. And I'm, I'm sure this guy, I think his name was Justin, right? Um, th- th- he fought as hard as he knew how with everything he could for a long, long time. I mean, this guy struggled with anxiety and depression and mental illness and suicidal thoughts and addiction um, for many, many years. And he, in fact, had done all he could to help other people struggling with similar things. I mean, he did a lot of work trying to help other people who were in a similar situation, which I think is beautiful. Um, and you know, it, and he did everything he could and it worked until it didn't. Um, and then, you know, you, sometimes you just reach this place where it's so dark and it's nothing, you know, that, that you're not, you have no way out in your mind in that moment. And even if you know what this guy knew, he knew all the, all the ways to cope with this. He knew all the, all the, he had told other people, like, Hey, when you get in this situation, here's what you should do. But, but when he got to that place, none of those things worked for him. And uh, again, it's not something where it, it's not as easy. It's easy. I mean, I guess if we, we can't armchair quarterback something like this, right? We can't say, well, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have done that. You have no idea because you're not in that situation. You have no idea how dark mm-hmm. it is, how hopeless it feels, um, how in that moment, it's not a rational decision and you don't back up and you don't rationalize your way out of this. Um, because it's because you're not there rationally. Irrationality is not what brought you there, so it's not going to get you out of it. And it's um, uh, and I, it just it bothers me when I see Christians turning against other Christians when when they when they suffer this way, whether they just suffer from it or whether they give into it, you know, and commit suicide. We kind of uh, we beat them up, we blame them rather than having compassion on them and then saying, you know, that sucks. You know, that's, that's a horrible thing and it's reality. And I think it's part of it is this idea that, well, if you just have more Jesus, if you were just a better Christian, um, you wouldn't be depressed because you would be filled with so much, you know, joy and life and happiness. And, um, and for some people that's true, but for other people it isn't. And, uh, that's just reality. Yeah. You know, I'm going to take a little different approach to this issue. Um, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I, 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 I look at this issue with depression, mental illness. Um, well, first of all, a couple of things I will say, I, I, I do hope, um, our society is, can grow in this area specifically, um, when it comes to like, even just thinking about the balance, you know, where there's not one particular, okay, so would we treat it with pharmaceuticals or we treat it with, you know, um, it's heavily skewed. It's been heavily skewed towards pharmaceuticals for years, just like our normal, like when you go to a doctor, I mean, the first thing they do, they pull out, you know, uh, you don't have to be there very long before they're pulling out the prescription pad and writing you a prescription. And that's, there's a reason for that. You know, uh, most doctors have been trained for about 45 minutes. The average doctor, when I have some of the studies I've read about 45 minutes in med school on nutrition or on, you know, I mean, that's just the, the reality. So of course it's going to be skewed, but as our society grows and we start to realize we are a holistic, like there is a holistic treatment to things. It's not just one thing or the other. 
I think that's a healthy thing. It can be really healthy. And, I'm, and I think we're growing in that when it comes to mental illness because it has been skewed for many years in the pharmaceutical direction. So I'm glad to see we're moving away from that a little bit. Um, I, I was, it's really interesting to talk about mental illness because I, I liken it to world hunger. It's a tragedy. You know, when, when, when people starve to death and they die because there's not enough food or water, they don't have access to food or water, it's tragic. And lots of people around the world die um, from hunger. But when it comes to mental illness, um, I look at it in a very similar way. So I was, I was recently I'm reading this great book called The Soul of Money, and it's by this lady named Lynn Twist, and she has worked for the world um, the World Bank, and she's very active in ending world hunger. And uh, she's helped raise money, helped countries raise money, helped organizations raise money. She's raised billions of dollars to go towards world hunger. And um, in the book, one of the things that she said that was a turning point is uh, she said that there have been movements all over the world in which there was like um, – you know, mass starvation um, in the 80s in Ethiopia and in Somalia in the 90s. And this has been going on as long as human history has been recorded, that people just starve to death. There's just mass. And so there's been these movements where people will jump in, countries will jump in. There was a lot of aid given to, um, to the folks in Ethiopia or in Somalia and different places in modern times. And uh, it temporarily relieves the suffering, but it doesn't, it doesn't even make a dent in the poverty of these folks and the suffering and the perpetual hunger of these folks because today their hunger is massive in these places of the world just like it i mean it made it it may not be an outright crisis where we're seeing it like we did in the 80s but it's still just as prevalent so the idea is she said she she didn't she realized that as long as we have the belief that hunger and starvation is actually a reality in the world that it's just something we have to live with then it will perpetuate. And she said that she saw major breakthroughs in smaller communities that actually, when they start to understand that, hey, there is, there is enough resources in the world that starvation doesn't actually have to happen. And when people stopped believing that this was just, an, just a thing we got to live with, then that's when changes started. Being, people started to be empowered. People started to make differences. There was, there was actually an alleviation of systemic poverty. And that's one of the things that she does today. She's like, I firmly believe that all the resources exist to end world hunger. And that's why she's so active on it. So she doesn't, she's like, I, I don't think we should tolerate this reality where people just starve to death in the world. It just, it doesn't have to happen. I have the same feeling about um, mental illness, just like physical illness as well. I do believe, I know that the reality is that people suffer from it. I get that. And there is many different variations from it. But I do believe that um, that we were put here on this earth for, I would just, you know, what Jesus said, to have life and to have it more abundantly. So that there is a, there is a solution to all forms of suffering in the world. And, why, and so I don't think anybody should be blamed for suffering. But I do want to give people encouragement and hope. That I've seen people, and just that's what one of the reasons I do the work I do is because when someone comes to me and says, "Hey, I'm really struggling," I will never encourage people not to take a pharmaceutical or to take a pharmaceutical because I'm not a doctor. I don't give that kind of advice, but I do have the belief that you absolutely, if you have a desire to be free of this, then I really believe that you can be. And I've seen people who have been on cl clinically chronically depressed. When they, when they do the work, 
and, and stick it out. And there's a sustainable, I've seen, I've seen people just overcome anything. It's unbelievable. And I've done it in my own life. And so I, I think that's a key thing I would like to just say about that. Like it's something that can be uh, treated and helped. Well, I, yeah, I would agree with that, but I, I would still say that, well, some people don't, even though they do the work. Um, so yeah, I'm sure there's been amazing things that have happened for, for some people. And it's not, and I wouldn't say that I disagree and, and, and think that it's something we should have to live with or people should have to live with. But, uh, yeah, some, sometimes people don't get over it, even though they do the hard work. I mean, it's something that stays with them their entire life, even though they can function, you know, they might have done a lot of work to be able to tolerate it. Um, I think sometimes just, it, it, I would never want to want to at all like stigmatize the people that can't get through it. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I mean, I kind of, I kind of know where you're coming from, Jamal, and I, I, I agree. I guess to a point, but I think in some ways, like uh, when I think about this guy, um, I think his name was Jared Wilson, right? Um, and and uh, again, we're not talking. This is not about him, but I think just him as an example. Um, it would be hard for me to say that this guy didn't didn't uh, do the work or that he didn't, uh, you know, do all that he could. Uh, but then again, I don't know him and I don't, I guess, I guess it kind of backs up to um, was, was the diagnosis of the cause of the depression accurate? Like maybe, maybe in other words, uh, there was a misdiagnosis of what was causing those things. And then, um, so the cure he was applying was for the wrong, <laughs> the wrong cause. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not close enough to this person to know. Um, uh, uh, but I will say this, so because uh, I think this ties into what you're saying, Jamal. So I have a very close personal friend. I've known this guy for many years. I mean, probably 20, well, easily, yeah, about 25 years I've known this guy. And um, when I first knew him, you know, he's, everything seemed fine. In fact, he was super successful and um, had a really, really great uh, sales job and he was making serious money. And then, uh, then their first child was born and then he kind of went into this anxiety tailspin. And what it turned out was he was never doing okay. Like what he was doing was self-medicating uh, his anxiety. And so we, we all thought he was totally fine, but really behind the scenes, he was not. And, um, and it was the birth of his first child. And then later the second child, he sort of compounded his fears and anxieties uh, that he always had that he couldn't mask anymore. Um, and uh, he's a believer. And so, you know, I, I would pray with him. He would come over sometimes to the house or we would get together and I would pray with him for hours, you know, and encourage him and listen to him and, you know, uh, give him advice and all this kind of stuff and, and try to help him as much as that I could. Of course, again, I'm, I'm not able to really, I can't cure him. I can't help him. I was just trying to be a good friend. But I mean, like I said, he struggled with this for uh, as long as I've known him. Um, and one of the things that I saw in his, in his life was a huge, huge turning point because for the... For the longest time, for most of that time that I was trying to help him and just be his friend through this, his attitude was that one day Jesus was going to heal him of this and it was all going to go away. He was going to turn the corner and, and one day he was going to wake up in the morning and he wasn't going to have this anxiety. He wasn't going to have these thoughts. He wasn't going to have this OCD and all that stuff. Um, and I And I kind of encouraged that because he believed it so much and I wanted it to be true for him. And that's the way I talked with him. That's the way I encouraged him. That's the way I prayed for him. One day, one day you're going to, you're going to be healed of this. And I, I tell you, there was one huge breakthrough 
that, that I saw in his life when he, he came to me and said, Keith, I think I'm always going to be this way. I think I'm always going to struggle. This is just something I'm always going to struggle with. Maybe I need to, um, maybe I just need to get, you know, be more, more serious about getting therapy and, um, you know, seeking out the right medications that can deal with this, uh, this imbalance that I have in my life. And when he did that, when he, that was the corner that he turned, I mean, his life, when I saw him say, I'm going to stop having this wishful thinking that one day it's just all magically going to go away and say, no, this is my life. This is, this is part of what it means to be who I am. I'm, and it sucks, but I'm going to have to learn how to manage it. And then he shifted to managing it. He shifted to, to, um, to dealing with it in a way that was, that was more helpful, right? That was more realistic. I mean, that's when I saw this massive change in his life and his family's life and his kids and, and everything. It was sort of like, um, and again, I'm not saying he's everybody. For some people, there probably is something that they can do that would make it go away. But for him, again, he struggled for so long and tried everything he knew how. Um, that for him, the turning point was recognizing I, this is part of who I am. I just need to to deal with this in a way that that makes sense, right? Um, so anyway, I just want to throw that out as a, as an option because I think for some people, it's detrimental yeah. to walk around believing that there's a day coming, you're going to wake up and it's going to go away. And for some of you, it, it may be true. I don't want to take that hope away from you. But for some of you, depending on what your situation is and the causes of it and the, and the struggle, um, it may be something you need to. Yeah. To I, well, but and what, one, can I just say one thing quick, Jamal? Uh, I just find, I, I, and then you can go for it. Um, I just, I love the irony of the whole thing because it's like the one, the, the thing that, that really did help this person. And it's a beautiful story is accepting that this is who he is. And so it is, it's like both. And that acceptance of it is the thing that helps the actual healing. Yeah. I would say what, what was healing for this guy was the acceptance part of his struggle. You know, I think anytime that we have a, we have a struggle um, to just say, yeah, this is what I'm dealing with. Um, is really healing. This is, and I would always, always when people say, yeah, there's coming a day where some of that, I always try to encourage people to not look for this future day where all the problems will be solved. Yeah. But because uh, that cannot be helpful, you know, then you can get discouraged because then you're like, when's that day coming? You know, um, but I always tell people, do you, I ask them, do you want to be free of this? And if the answer is yes, see, I believe that you don't have a desire that there's no fulfillment for. That's ultimate torture. So I encourage people. If I, if somebody says, because some people are like, no, I think I'm okay just managing it. If someone's okay managing it, then just manage it. But if you're not okay managing it, I actually believe that there's a solution for you. And I will encourage people. I don't, I'm not afraid of that. That's a bold promise. I will tell people you can be free of this if you want to be. And yeah, I've just seen it. I've seen it too many times when the desire is there, then the solution to that desire is there. And it comes with, it takes a lot of work to change. I mean, there's, there's so many studies done. There were people who were clinically depressed. And when you're clinically depressed, you have um, serotonin levels are below a certain level, the chemical in the brain that maintains function. Uh, it, when it goes below a certain level, you're clinically depressed. And th- a lot of those folks have been on, usually a psychiatrist will prescribe a, some form of a serotonin inhibitor to get the chemical level up to a certain level. And then you can function. But life still, it's a struggle because it's, you know, you're battling your body. There's something going on in your body 
in which the serotonin level is not maintaining a proper level. So in order to get that level back up, you have to keep prescribing the medication to keep boosting it. But they've done these studies when they've actually designed thought patterns. They've actually analyzed thought patterns of people who struggle with, uh, with clinical depression. And it turns out that there's, a, there's three constant themes in people who struggle with, with uh, clinical depression. And one of those is there, uh, a lot of the mental focus is on circumstances or situation that they have no control over. Um, the second one is there's a lot of focus on things they feel like they don't have. So there's a real sense of lack, whether it be financial lack, whether it be anything, anything, there's just a lot of focus on, I feel like I need this, but I don't have this. Or there's a f- dwelling on the, f- the past where there's trauma, unhealed trauma, unprocessed trauma, or the future in which, you know, there's anxiety about the past repeating itself. So when these three thought, these are three thought patterns of people who struggle with clinical depression. So when people have been successfully able to change through different, you know, techniques, change their thinking patterns from from things that they don't control to only the things they have direct control over to, to instead of thinking about things they don't have to the beginning to appreciate from a place of gratitude, things they do have and to begin to process past pain and get present to get really present. Once as they are processing past pain, they're actually able to get more present when people do that, when they change their thinking, thinking in these three areas, their serotonin levels start to come back up. And many of these folks have been able to come off the medication. So I just, I tell people that like, again, there's no shame in that. Again, it's not about needing more Jesus, not having enough faith. It's none of that. People have enough faith. It's already in you. But I do believe very strongly that there is hope and solutions, real practical solutions, so that you don't just have to manage a life of constant mental illness and depression. I just think that there's a better life out there for us. And that's why I do the work I do because I'm very passionate yeah. about that. And I think, I mean, I mean, it's been shown that the, the, the way our thought, I mean, that our thought patterns fundamentally change our, our, our universe and our experience. I mean, so that, that just, I mean, that I, that transcends anyone with mental health or not. Like, I think we can, if we're always pining about the past or worried about the future, it is fundamentally going to change how we experience things. I think it's always important. Yeah, I, I would just say, Jamal, I think this is something, this is a, a situation where yeah, you and I are going to disagree on on that. Because like, I, oh, I, I, Absolutely. Yeah, I think, because um, like for me, again, with my friend, I, I, I've never met anyone in my life who wanted to be cured more than he did. I mean, I mean, I watched this grown man weep and sob and, uh, and he considered suicide and considered, you know, yeah. drastic measures. And he wanted so badly it would have done anything and, and tried everything that he knew to try. And so, I, I mean, I agree with you on one level that, yeah, I think depending on maybe the root cause of, of the particular anxiety or illness that you're dealing with, there may be a cure and you may be able to do some things that would solve it. But I also think um, that willpower and desire alone aren't enough. Cause like if I have Parkinson's. Didn't no, 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 not. Yeah. I'm not talking about willpower, desire at all. I'm talking about desire will actually lead you. There's a reason you have that desire. It's not just there to torture you. Right. So it, willpower is not the solution, but there are real techniques out there that, that really help. Again, I'm not trying to, you know, again, it, there's no, there's no, it just, people say they tried everything. Well, I mean, everything that they know, for right. sure. And there's no shame in that. But, um, but if your friend, you know, I would, I don't know who your friend is, but I'd love to talk to him. Yeah. But I, um, I guess my point is that, um, uh, I would agree with you. Yes. That 
solutions can be found for which there are solutions, for problems for which there are solutions. But mm-hmm. for example, if I have Parkinson's or I have MS or I have bone cancer, I mean, maybe <laughs> there's a way to overcome those things, but maybe maybe your desire to not have that problem isn't enough. In other words, like that's a desire that will not be fulfilled, unfortunately. Um, that it's something you are going to have to recognize that, well, you're always going to have Parkinson's. You're always going to have bone cancer. You're always going to have something that like, like there is no um, solution at hand. And so in that situation, then yeah, the best thing you can do is learn how to say, well, then how can I live the best life I can live? Um, yeah. With this, yeah. Right? I, I would say, I would say acceptance of the fact that you're dealing with this is key. And that is what I think you're found your fa- your friend found healing in is that acceptance. I would just not. I would be very hesitant to put a cap on or a lid on something with a limiting belief and say there's just no solution out there for you because I I don't think you can say that. I just think you can say well this is what I got and this is what I'm dealing with and I would love to be better but you know right now I this is what I know to do and and then be okay with that process. But there's just a lot of lim- I, I deal with this all the time where people come to the table. One person says, yeah, this is just the way it is. And I'm just going to deal with this and that's okay. And then, then, okay, then we'll just learn to manage it. But then there's other people that will say, well, no, I totally can. I know there's a solution out there and I will encourage them in that. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's be encouraged in that. But yeah. and, and, and I was just going to say, but there's also, there's also a level of suffering that comes from struggling and fighting for something for 20 years um, and never, ever, ever achieving the goal. Like, uh, in some ways, the healing is to, to say, stop beating your head against that wall. Like, it's, uh, so in other words, you know what I'm saying? Like, to say, oh, yeah, I believe that there's some way to change this and I'm going to fight, 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 fight and work, work, work and do, do, do. And, and my friend, I saw him do this, um, with no change, no result, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing was changing this. And so for, for him, the healing part of his healing was to to say, you know what? Uh, instead of always fighting and, and, and striving and yearning for something that I believed was there that was possible, to say, you know what? That is that's part of my anxiety and insanity is like I've got to let go of this yeah. fantasy that it's just going to one day disappear. Well, so, like yeah. for him, for him to say, okay, whew, I'm just going to let go, right? Stop. I'm running in circles here. Whenever, and whenever, I, whenever somebody says that, you know, one day and it's out there, you know, I always caution that because there's a looking to the future and I try to caution that. And it's the same thing again, to bring it back to the world hunger, because this is, there's a very direct correlation here is that when we look at suffering in the world, like world hunger, one of the things that gets people to just give up on it is the belief that there's no solution to it. Now, is there, will you struggle with world hunger for 20 years? Yeah. This, this problem has been going on a long time and there are real shortages to food at people's access to food and water. It's a very real, real issue that affects millions and millions of people every day. But the people who are really at the forefront of solving this problem are folks, and I've been struck with this, who actually believe that it's a needless problem that we should not that, that people, human beings in the 21st century should not die of a lack of access to water or food. I would agree with because, that. Well, I, I agree with that in everything. It's, it doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with it or that's not going to be an issue to work through. But part of the, part of the, I think, solution comes at the consciousness level 
we 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 tolerate far too much in this world. We actually think that this is people, and Christians are the worst at it. This is a fallen world. It's just the way it is. It's just reality. It's just what we got to deal with. And and I think people do that to make themselves feel better. But at the end of the day, it's like because that's why nothing has to change. We just begin to we manage a broken world. We begin we tolerate. It. And I actually I have the same philosophy when it comes to to mental health. Is that that there is a solution for it. And we, it doesn't mean you don't accept where you are and accept the fact that, yeah, I'm dealing with depression. It's a real thing. It really affects lots of people. Um, it, I just approach it from that perspective. Yeah, which, which I think is all great. But we, what we must remember is if, if, we, you know, if we make an analogy to like medical health and we have these diseases like Keith mentioned, MS or Parkinson's, and we treat mental health more like right. that instead of stigmatizing it, then we must remember that, yeah, we don't want to cap anything, but we're, we're in our time and place. Like we've been studying mental health not very long. We've had uh, modern medicine not very long, and so yeah, there eventually right. there there could be a cure to cancer, or there could be, and then there's probably. I mean, you know, I'm not yeah. saying there's no reason we can't find one, but we're, we're we seem more than capable to be able to figure these things out. Nanotechnology, all these, the future of medicine, we have no idea where it's going to go, but we're still here in our time and place. And yeah, we might have some great cure that we can figure out in a hundred years for clinical depression. That's right. just like a hundred percent. Uh, all peer reviewed, all all studied, but we're not there in that time and place. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, and I think one of the things, especially even when it comes to medicine, uh, health, physical health, um, one of the things that, uh, and we could probably do a whole show on this, that you know we're we're spending billions and billions of dollars looking for the cures to cancer and some of these diseases, but there are lots of people that claim to have the cure for cancer and have cured it for a long time, and I know somebody personally. Uh, that was told by you know some of the best doctors in this country that there was no cure for her cancer, and she had to travel uh, out of the country to get alternative treatment and uh, cured it right fairly short order. And um, and of course we hear about this stuff all the time, but it's kind of poo pooed or that's not that's not normative or that's a, that's an extraordinary case or it's these things aren't actually being talked about because again it's it's there, there's a real strong I don't think it's all about money and. You know, of course, that's an element to to, our, to this these things, but there's just a real strong belief out there that this is just that there are no solutions to these problems. And part of it is like, in some of these things are even ancient. Uh, you know, I mean, I, so many we could, we could spend so many so much time on here talking about uh, incurable diseases. People struggle with chronic illness for 20, 30, 40 years, and go to an Ayurvedic practitioner and um, are better in uh, three months. And, and and this is not a one off thing. I mean, there's there's lots of people where this happens. But again, you got to start. I think you have to start opening your mind to these possibilities if we're going to see yeah. change in the world. And at the same time, and I, we've already kind of touched on this, but uh, I just want to make sure we we don't we don't end this podcast without stressing the idea that if you are someone, you're a Christian, uh, you struggle with depression, OCD, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, um, these kinds of things. Um, it's not that you're not Christian enough. It's not that you um, don't pray enough. It's not that you don't have enough faith. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want anyone to feel because, because to me, what I see, I see too much of that. I see too many Christians sort of putting the blame on the person and like saying, "Well, it's because you're not. You know, you should you should be uh, you know you should be praying more. You should be having more faith and believing." And, and again, I'm not saying that those things don't play into your ultimate healing, but at the same time, if you're doing all that you can. Um, and struggling with this thing, I, I mean, I, I don't want anyone to get the idea that, well, this is just your problem and you're not, look, the rest of us are fine. 
Right. Look at us. We're, we're doing great. And what, well, hurry up, catch up. Uh, stop doing Yeah. I, I would also say, yeah, I would also just to, just to piggyback on what you're saying, Keith, I would, if you're, if you're a Christian and you're struggling with any kind of mental health, then you know it, uh, issue. And I don't say this lightly, but I would really uh, encourage you to explore leaving your faith community because the, the, one of the worst places uh, for folks who struggle with mental illness is the church as we know it in this, in this the, typically because there, there is a direct correlation to beliefs that you're being taught about who you are and who God is. And in the typical, I know this is controversial. People will like react to this. If you're taught that you are, you have a sinful nature. If you're taught that God is angry, if you're taught that you need more faith because you lack faith, um, these are all toxic environments for you to be in. And I would encourage you. I, I mean, I, I stayed in a faith community way too long. My spirit was urging me to leave. It was a toxic place and I didn't do it. And I really, really suffered greatly for it. And I would just encourage people, don't be afraid to just say for my own self-care and self-love, I can't be in a community where you, these things are affecting you at a subconscious level. They're deeply disturbing beliefs that uh, Christianity teaches about God and ourselves. So you, you want to, I would encourage you to take your, your mental health seriously by by not subjecting yourself to those kind of abusive things if you feel like you can't handle yeah. it. If you're in a faith community that is toxic and that is giving you those uh, those messages, then yeah, absolutely. But but at the same time, you may be in a faith community that is really loving and very supportive and you know, and isn't uh, in fact, if you are if you are someone who's struggling with mental illness and, and these kind of things and depression, and you're in a faith community that is encouraging and, and it's like really like a family to you. Well, then you probably shouldn't leave it because it's one of the few things keeping you, <laughs> keeping you afloat at the moment, right? So, I mean, I, I've definitely seen a lot of toxic faith uh, communities that I would absolutely encourage people to run, run, run as fast as you can from those kind of controlling, fear-based, condemning communities that absolutely uh, get out of there as fast as you can. But if you're in a faith community, I know there's faith communities in general are not the problem. Faith, toxic faith communities are the problem. If you're in a faith community, that, basically, basically Christianity. Well, I mean, if I was, I, I was in a community for 11 years that was extremely uh, affirming and healthy, and uh, you know, yeah. and and I, I, I think anybody in our community that was struggling with mental illness who would leave, but well, I know one mm -hmm. one specific person uh, who, when they left, actually went from our group to toxic groups, mm -hmm. and their suicidal thoughts and depression increased, and then. Like they were better mm -hmm. off with us because we were uh, encouraging them and, you know, and, and telling them, no, you're not, God doesn't hate you. You're not a worm. Um, you totally. know, God doesn't think of you that way. But when they were in communities that reinforced that idea that, oh, you're a sinner, you're a worm, God hates you. You better not mess up again or God's going to, God's going to get you. Like, totally. yeah, I mean, if you're in a community like that, yes, get out of it. But if you're in a community that, that, that affirms you and, and tells you, no, God loves you yeah. and, you know, we're with you and God is with you and for you, then. And stick around. Yeah, I feel like we can carry this conversation on and on and on, which is why we have a Patreon. So uh, I think we should flesh this out a little more in our bonus round. So if you are listening and you want to get a hold of that, make sure you join us on Patreon.com/slash/HereticHappyHour. And we also have a website, which is HereticHappyHour.com, which you can keep up to date with all of our latest yep. episodes and, and, hey, and we our have store a Facebook and all group, that. Not good just shit. one, but two Facebook groups. 
Uh, one for the Heretic Caviar Group for all of our Patreon supporters. If you support us even at the lowest level, which I think is like $2, which is nothing, uh, you can get into that group and we have some great conversations there. Uh, and we also have a group called the Heresy After Hours Group, which is an open group. Uh, well, it's private, but it's, you know, you can join it without being a Patreon supporter. And uh, that's another place where we spend a lot of time talking more about these kind of topics uh, that we talk about here in the podcast. Yes. And also, I'm really excited when I announce uh, a, a project that I'm working on that will be launching here in, in uh, mid to late October. Um, but I have a thing called the Awakening Workshop. And um, if you have struggled, if you're listening to this and you felt stuck in life or that you struggle with even some mental illness and you just feel like there is... Uh, you have a desire to move beyond that and move into places of awakening and places of just where you're enjoying life and waking up to your highest and most authentic and powerful self. I put together um, a five-week program that's really designed to take us through the stages of the awakening process. And these are the stages that I've observed just in my own coaching work. And I've just boiled it down and you'll be working with a group of people who, are, who have the same uh, and a very similar uh, pursuit to waking up to our highest and best self. So it's it, it, if you if you have a desire to be awake, I would encourage you to check that out. You can send me an email, Jamal at jamaljavanji.com, or you can go to my website, which is jamaljavanji.com, and uh, you know put your email address in there and click submit, and you'll find out more information about that. Oh, and rate us and review us on YouTube as well. Do it. Do it. Yes, do please it. do that. Do it. Do it. <laughs>